I've come to receive revelation, wisdom, and understanding from your holy word. And I fully expect the Holy Spirit to bear witness with my spirit concerning revelation of the word and how to apply it in my life on a daily basis. Amen, 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 amen. Praise the Lord. Acts chapter number nine. Acts chapter number nine. I want to admonish those that uh, watch the broadcast live or by recording uh, to get hold of the other teachers that we've talked about in regards to this area of kingdom of kingdom concepts because I cannot repeat everything that we've gone over over these last several weeks. Um, one of the things about this ministry is that everything is progressive in the sense that one thing builds on another thing. And as a pastor, I want to admonish those that are not in the house, amen, that you, in order for you to grow to the degree that God is intending for you to grow, you're going to need to put all this stuff together. It is absolutely impossible for us to be able to go over everything in one setting and then move forward. So that being said, it's incumbent upon you to do your part in making sure that you get those things that you did not get when you were not here. Amen. It's the teacher in me coming out, but I just simply want to tell you that is indeed the case. We have several ways that you can get hold of the word through podcasts, through YouTube, through Facebook, etc. But we want you to grow in your spiritual walk with God. If you understand that, everyone said amen. Now, we've been looking for the last little while here from the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 through essentially 10. And we found out of this particular passage of scripture, which I'm not going to read this morning for the sake of time, what I define as these eight ingredients for a formula of success. These eight ingredients that Peter, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brings out to us that enables us to have a prosperous or a fruit-filled life, a fruit-filled life. And he says essentially that if these things are growing in you and they are abounding in you, you will be fruitful in life in your Christian walk. Because we've determined from these scriptures, in fact, that God does want us to be fruitful. He wants us to be productive. He wants us to be effective. And so we've essentially said that the formula, the objective of these scriptures or these ingredients is to, is to have knowledgeable, effective and productive understanding of our Lord Jesus Christ for the purpose of using these skills to obtain and maintain a kingdom perspective, a kingdom perspective of life that will result in what the Bible says as a failure proof Christian living. And so we've explained and we've looked at these eight ingredients as the titles and the names. And we've kind of been making our way through this so that we can see, God, if you say that I can live a life that's failure proof, what do I have to do in order for that to happen? If someone says to you, I'm going to hand you this life jacket. You're going to be thrown out in this water in just a little bit, but I'm going to put this life jacket on you or I'm going to give you, as the scriptures would indicate, the opportunity to put this life jacket on. And you say, well, I don't need it. Don't take all of that. If you jump out in that water and you drown, it's not God's fault. 
It's not the person that gave you the opportunity to have the life jacket's fault that you drown. Because they gave you the opportunity to have something that you could actually rise above the circumstances of life. If you do these things, you'll never fail. How many times it does require that you do something? You got in to the kingdom of God by his grace through faith. But once you get in the kingdom of God, that getting in the door had everything to do with you believing what Jesus did so you can come through the door. But now inside of the kingdom, you achieving and accomplishing what God has intended for your life has everything to you, has everything to do with you operating in this area of what we define as sanctification. You embracing the kingdom's way over the old way of living. You embrace the king's demands or the king's uh, edicts, his concepts to become what he's intended you to be over what you want to be yourself. And so he says these eight ingredients, and we've said the eight ingredients of this formula, or he says essentially, are first start with faith. Start with faith. And then he says add virtue, goodness, moral excellence. And the message translation literally used the, uh, the terminology good character. He says add knowledge. He says add self-control. Add steadfastness. Add godliness, add brotherly affection, and then he says add love. He says if you add these components to your walk, then he says you will not fail in regards to your Christian life. And so, of course, we looked at this area of faith for several weeks even before we got into this particular series. And now we're looking at this area of virtue, and we shall conclude, hopefully, in this area of virtue on this morning. For that, let's look at, if you will, at Acts chapter 9 and verse 31. Acts chapter 9 and verse 31, which you should have at this point in time. Amen. <laughs> Acts chapter 9 and verse 31. Let me go ahead and preface this and say that even though we finish with a subject talking about it, that does not mean we're really done with the subject. We're just moving on, essentially. Because you could talk about virtue for a lot longer than we have and will do so in this teaching. And of course, most of these things we'll circle back around to as the Lord leads. Acts chapter 9, verse 31, it says, Then had, out of the King James, then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were, watch the word, edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. What was taking place at this particular passage of scripture, chapter nine, talks about the conversion of Paul. Paul is met with reality. He's met with the truth of who Jesus is on the Damascus road. And as it's recorded, <laughs> like I heard one, one preacher say, it's the shortest conversion that you see in scripture that Jesus appears to him, knocks him off his donkey, he says, and Paul looks up and says, Lord, <laughs> it's real quick, all of a sudden, because Paul had been somebody that was a zealot. He was very interested in making sure that the people of that day kept the law. He was zealous about what he thought was right until he came in contact with a living Jesus. And the day he came in contact with a living Jesus, his perspective of life began to change because he got revelation about something that he had an issue with, a flaw. 
And from that day, Paul began to see something different. And we, of course, we understand what happened is he physically lost his sight. This becomes the, the central theme of everything that Paul does. He talks about that you might see, that you might have revelation, that the, the, the revelation of the Holy Spirit might be enlightening of, or to you. One of the things that's interesting when you read the New Testament is that when you read it and understand the testimony of the writers, it begins to form and shape the way you look at how they write. That Paul says over and over again that you might see, that revelation might come, that you may walk in this because he knows what it's like to think that he believes one thing and is right and he's actually wrong. And so chapter 9 begins to tell his story of his conversion. And the chapter 9, as it begins to methodically go through, it talks about how Ananias came and, and ministered the gospel and ministered uh, for his healing of his blinded eyes to him. And after that point, he began to, to learn and matriculate and preach the gospel three years in the Damascus area before he makes the track back up into Jerusalem. And then he begins to preach in that area. But the Bible says, particularly in Acts chapter 9, that when he makes his way back to Jerusalem, the same folks that he was once personally are now looking at him a little suspiciously and rightfully so now they look at him and they say now wasn't it too long ago that Paul was persecuting the church and now he a preacher now is he he one of us and so it's important that as we look at that and understand that, that yes, you may have grown in your own personal life and in your own personal walk, but people that have not seen your walk won't believe your walk until they see your character in manifestation. You can't think that just because, yeah, you had this experience with God that everybody believes the testimony that you have. Sometimes it takes just a bit of time for people to watch what you're doing to see if it matches what you're saying before they believe that you really had an experience with God. And you can't get upset with the fact that they don't believe yet. All you need to do is keep walking and keep growing. Keep walking and keep growing. And as you keep walking and keep growing, you'll convince people that are your doubters, that are skeptical of you, that you really have been with Jesus. That's a side journey. Verse 31 tells us essentially Paul begins ministering in, in throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria. And the Bible says they were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. Well, the word edified is interesting because the Amplified Bible breaks it out a little bit further. It says, so, that, so the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace without persecution. Now, I love how it says that because who was one of the main proponents of the persecution? Paul. And so yes, they had a time because Paul wasn't persecuting anymore, he was preaching. So they had a time without persecution. And it says they were built up in wisdom and notice the term virtue and in faith and walking in the fear of the Lord. The word edified there is explored as wisdom, virtue, and faith. When you are being edified by the Spirit of God, when the ministry of the word is going forth, you're being built up in wisdom, you're being built up in virtue and in faith. So therefore it makes the teaching and the preaching of the word vitally important so that you can in fact be built up in these areas so that you can walk in this area of edification. We've said in the past that virtue essentially is power. 
Virtue is an internal power that produces character that you, in fact, walk in. We've indicated to you, and I want to say this again, and I'll say this again and again in this series, that whatever does not proceed from the heart will not be sustained in your life. Virtue is something that's internal that comes about to, in fact, impact your life. Virtue is when you are edified by the Holy Spirit, the wisdom of God, the faith of God, and the virtue of God grows on the inside of you so that it begins to impact the way you walk, the way you act, the way you talk. And as that begins to happen, it impacts what is defined as your character. So that is what gives you power within life. And so one of the aspects that we've been looking at is this area of generosity. And I want to I kind of just conclude this area this morning to some degree and home in on this. What does virtue produce? What does it produce? If it's something that's on the inside that produces character, what does that actually look like? What does virtue in and of itself produce? I submit to you that virtue first produces within your life generosity, which is why we spent two weeks or two sessions talking about it. Generosity. Generosity. Well, what is generosity? It is, notice the term, it is a willingness to give help or support. And on Wednesday, on Thursday night, Lord have mercy, we talked about looking at the different areas, how a cheerful heart and a willing heart is the same thing that people gave willfully to the work of God throughout the scriptures, yes, from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And so we see that virtue produces generosity. Generosity also is a willingness to give money, help, kindness, especially more than is usual or expected. What does that mean? That if I'm a generous person, that means I'm going over and above just what everybody else is doing or the average. I'm not giving you a tip. I'm giving you something from the abundance of my heart. I'm giving you something that moves me first. Generosity, therefore, if I had to boil it down, has seven different kinds or seven forms that we can talk about in regards to what does it mean to be generous. You can be generous in first in thought, that my, my thinking or my cognitive ability is not just centered around me, but it's about somebody else. I can be generous where my words are concerned, that I can use my words to build up someone instead of tearing them down. Because, you know, one of the biggest things that we have where relationships are concerned is that we use our tongue to hurt people, to stab them instead of building them. And we need to be, as children of God, people that are circumspect concerning how we treat people, how we talk to them, so that our words are able to edify them and not deplete or tear them down. This is one of the issues people have in marriage, that they are on the battlefield in their house instead of having someone that speaks life into them. Generosity can be manifested in an area of time that I spend time with you, that I spend time doing this, that I give of myself to help and support somebody. Yes, I got to be here, but I determined that you are valuable and I'm going to give of my time to this issue or this person. Generosity also can be, uh, another form of generosity is in an area of things and possessions. Things and possessions. Maybe I look around my house and I see some things that I ain't using. 
Maybe you bless somebody else with it if it's in good condition. Maybe I look at some of the books that I've read and I enjoy them and they're still on my shelf. Maybe somebody else can be enjoying like I did. Maybe I decide out of my heart that I want to sow them into the life of somebody else. Having an abundance has everything to do with you having the ability to perceive that yes, the things that God has given me maybe can be a blessing to someone else. Generosity, seven forms of generosity. Another form is an influence. Influence is one of those things that we often don't think about when we think in terms of generosity. That somebody has influence and they are sharing their influence with you. This is something that happens where, you know, somebody, everybody knows this person, but they don't know you. But they bring you close to share the influence that they've already established with the group onto you. This is one of the things we see within scripture where God begins to say distinctly when Moses is determined that he is not going to be able to go over to the promised land. God says, I want you to start sharing the influence that you have with Joshua. I want you to bring him close and embrace him so that the people that have your interest, that see your influence, will know that that is now being transferred to the next generation. This is one of the issues that we have with the former generation now, that we're not bringing people close so that they can now walk in the same influence that you had and build from a new point and not the point where you started off at. Sharing the platform. Sharing it with the next generation, that is a form of generosity. Generosity also can be in attention or attentiveness, which is, of course, linked to time. That I give attention to this. It's important. I'm giving my, of myself to this. Yeah, I got other stuff to do, but I'm going to spend the time giving attention to this area. This is one of the things I see when I look in terms of the church. You know, how many people, they say they love God, love it, but we can't find them ever at the church. They never give attention to the church. They're full of criticisms about what the church ought to be doing, but you ain't giving no attention to do anything yourself. You're not a generous person. And of course, we understand that generosity can also be in areas of money and wealth. Let's look over for the sake of time at Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Now watch this. Generosity originates first. It always originates first from a love of God. Love of God. Matthew 25 verse 35. Watch this out. The New International Version of the Bible says, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Verse 36. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry? And when, and he says, and feed and fed you, or thirsty and gave you something to drink. Verse 38, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? And he says, verse 39, when did we see you sick or in prison and you go to visit and go to visit you? Verse 40, the king will reply, and I submit to you, this is Jesus speaking as, uh, as representing, of course, in this particular text, he is representing the king of all kings. He says, we need to get this idea. The king will answer and he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for, uh, for one of the least of these and sisters 
of mine you did for me. My heart of generosity has to extend to people because my heart first begins with a love of God. So I extend help to people. I extend aid to people because I am reflecting God's relationship with me. When I go help you, it's because of the fact I love him first. And because I love him and my overall relationship with God extends to what he loves, then I begin to help you because it's first out of honor of him and love of you. Generosity. Virtue produces generosity. If you understand that, say amen. Number two, virtue produces a selflessness. Virtue produces selflessness. What is selflessness? Let's define these terms. Selflessness is a lack of preoccupation with one's own interests, advancements, or and or desires. A lack of preoccupation. In other words, the only thing I am thinking about is how this benefits me, mine, how I'm going to get ahead, how I'm going to do better, how my family is going to get the next thing. It is an attentiveness to those other than or to others. It is unselfishness. Virtue, when you allow the spirit of God to create this on the inside of you, it produces selflessness. Well, selflessness has a root. It's rooted in this term of love. Romans chapter 5 and verse 5 says, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So God's love is poured out into you. The day you got born again, his love now pours on the inside of you producing on the inside of you this area of virtue. This area of virtue, if you allow the Spirit of God to cultivate, will produce in you selflessness. Selflessness. Look over here at 1 Corinthians chapter number 13. 1 Corinthians chapter number 13. Let's look specifically at verse number 5 for the sake of time. It's talking about love because it begins to say love is patient, love is kind, love isn't envious, it doesn't boast, it doesn't brag, it doesn't stun about. I'm reading out the voice. There's no arrogance in love. Then it says, verse number five, it's not rude, it's never rude, crude, or indecent. Notice the term, it's not self-absorbed. It's not self-absorbed. You cannot tell me that you're walking in love and it's always about you. You cannot tell me you love your wife, you love your husband, and it's always about you. You cannot tell me, even as a single person, how much you love people, and it's always about you. Love, if you allow the Spirit of God to produce that virtue on the inside of you, it will have first an area of generosity, but it, that generosity is rooted in the fact it's rooted in love. I care about other people. I care about what God cares about. It's not just about me and mine. It's not, dare I say to a pastor, it's not just about you and your church. How about the city? How about what God wants to do in the region that he set you in? Yes, you have a wonderful church. Yes, you have a wonderful ministry. But what about somebody else? Do I have a concern that extends beyond me? Let's take a quick side journey. 
What is selfishness? Selfishness, look at these areas real quick. The natural state of man is self-centered. It is defined really within scripture in Romans chapter 8 as when you walk in the flesh. Romans chapter 8 verse 8 indicates to us that if you walk in the flesh, you cannot please God. Now, self-interest is not selfishness. However, selfishness is always has a root based on pride. What is self-interest? Self-interest is where, yeah, I got to take care of my family now. I have obligations as a husband, as a father, to take care of my wife and my kids. Is that being selfish? No, that's not being selfish. What it means to be selfish is when I think that my wife and my kids are the only ones that matters. Everything else in the community is, is not important to me. I don't have a concern. I don't have a concern about my neighborhood. I only care about my house. I don't have a concern about my town or my city. I'm only concerned about what's going on with me. Self-interest is, yeah, I got to take care of those things that are connected directly to me. But to be selfish means I'm only concerned about what's connected to me and what it has to do with me and how it benefits me. It's always pride-based. Selfishness also can hide inside false spirituality or pretension. Selfishness can hide inside a false spirituality or pretension. Let's look. James chapter 2 and verse 18 says, Now someone may argue this out of the New Living Translation. Some people have faith and others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say, yes, I walk with the anointing. I walk next to God. I have coffee and crumpets with Jesus every single day. But we don't see anything in manifestation in your life other than what benefits you. You are a selfish person that's acting spiritual. You are walking in a level of pretension because you're really not concerned about other people. The only thing you're concerned with is making sure they call you evangelist this, uh, pastor that, prophetess this. You're not concerned about the community. You don't pray about nothing that's going on in the community. You don't preach to nobody the gospel. You don't do anything that says I have a concern about anything other than somebody acknowledging you. Spiritual pretension. Selfishness. Selfishness perverts you from perceiving the will of God. Why? Because God's heart is for other people, but your heart is for you and what it can do for you. When you have a singular vision based on what's going on with you, you will never have a kingdom perspective because God is concerned about everybody. Yeah, I'll say that. That's one of the issues that we're having in these United States. Some people think that God is simply a United States citizen, that he doesn't have a whole world on his mind. God is not an American. God is a king of the world. He's interested in what's going on in Africa. He's interested in what's going on in Europe. He's interested in what's going on in Australia. He's interested in what's going on in every area of the planet and not just these United States. And sometimes our perspective can be off because we are selfish. We think it's just about us, what God's doing in these United States, and we miss the global picture of what he's doing throughout the world. Virtue produces good works. Number three, virtue produces generosity. Virtue produces 
selflessness and virtue produces good works. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16 says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father which is in heaven. The word glorify literally means to honor. It means to magnify. It means to make renowned. So he says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and honor your father which is in heaven. Let them see your good works so they may magnify your father. Let them see your good works so that they may make renown your father. Now, good works are produced from virtue. Let's look up over once again at 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 7. We're going to put all this together and close. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 7. Scripture says, and we've read this for the last two weeks, every man according as he has purpose in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver. And then he says, and God is able. God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that ye always having all sufficiency for all things may abound, notice the term, to every good work. To every good work. He says, every man purpose in his heart, so let him give. God loves a cheerful, prompt to do a giver. God loves a willful giver. And the one that willfully gives, he says, God is able to make the grace of God abound towards you. God is able because of your cheerful prompt to do it, your willful giving to make sure that you have all sufficiency for all things that you may abound. But he doesn't say that you may abound to your own work, but it's to a good and specific work. Let's put this together with Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 10. He says, watch this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto, notice the term, good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk therein. He says, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and your good works glorify God. He says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that you should purpose in your heart to be a willful giver so that you allow the ability of God to be released in your life so he can supply the needs for the good work that he's assigned you to. And then he says that the good work that he's assigned you to has everything to do with the fact that you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the work. The New Living Translation says, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good thing he planned for us long ago. I said all this because I want us to put this together and we're going to close here. I want to talk about this cycle. There is a cycle where this area of virtue is concerned. The cycle and understanding this concept is vitally important. When you have the right perspective that allows you to see perhaps what God has you doing. What is a cycle? It is, it is an interval during which a reoccurring sequence of events occurs. It is a repeated sequence of events. A cycle means that I start here and it goes around and it comes back around. Around and it comes back around. We've been talking about where virtue produces and I submit to you that it produces a form or a sense of a cycle.
So what, let's look at this. Virtue produces in our life. First area is when we spend time with God, I spend time in prayer. I spend time getting God's desires on the inside of me. Jesus said, if ye abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask what you will and it shall be given unto you. That means that the more time I spend with God, it produces God's heart or I begin to gain God's heart. God's love begins to begin to overflow from the inside of me the more time I spend with God. This is one of the reasons why people tell me they want vengeance or they want hate or they want to do these kind of things. I ask the question, have you been spending time with God? Because despite the way you feel, God loves your enemies just as much as he loves you. And when you spend time with God, spend time in his word, spend time in his presence, God has a funny way of changing your perspective where your enemies are concerned. That all of a sudden, that's why he says pray for your enemies. Do good to those that curse you because he says, I want you to begin to gain my heart even for people that you don't like. Spending time with God produces the gain of his heart. His love begins to be stirred up on the inside of you. His love or love of God produces virtue. When he stirs this love on the inside of you, it is the virtue. It is his power that's stirred up on the inside of you. This virtue then produces generosity. Generosity. Because I spend so much time with God, I begin to get his heart. Now I want to give my time, my efforts, and yes, even my money to the things that God wants me to give to. Sounds like as a man has purpose in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or out of necessity. Why? Because I spend so much time with God, getting his perspective, that my heart begins to align with his purpose. When my heart aligns with his purpose, God says your heart is holy. Virtue produces generosity. Now watch this. Generosity then allows God to fund the good work that he assigns you. That's why he says God is able. God is able. After you purpose in your heart to give, so let you give. Because he says once you get my heart and you start giving where I direct you to give, now I'll begin to fund the good work that I've assigned you. The good work therefore gives glory to God, which what is what? It gives honor, it magnifies him, it makes God renowned. And so the cycle begins again, that I spend time with God, as I begin to spend time with God, I get God's heart, as I get God's heart, I begin to walk in, in the virtue of God, as I begin walking in virtue, it produces generosity, as it produces generosity, it allows me to begin giving and doing those things that he's called me to do, which means that God says, I'll fund that work. So God gets glory through and from my life. Now let's look at this in the opposite direction. Unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians that use this cycle in the opposite direction. <clears throat> How this looks is they spend no time with God. No time with God. They spend no time praying. They don't go to church. They don't do anything except when they feel in religious. What does that produce? It produces selfish, selfishness. A singular focus on me. How can I advance? How can I do this? Because I don't spend any time with God, so I only spend time with my own thoughts. This singular focus or this selfishness produces, and I'm talking about Christians, I ain't talking about the world. It produces corruption. 
Because the more I spend time just thinking about me, then now I'm not interested in what God wants. That means I begin, now I open myself up to be corrupted by satanic influence. This corruption then produces a sense of greed or bad behavior. My bad behavior then, it allows carnality to employ Satan within my life. Employing Satan creates dishonor, and yes, you become a hypocrite in life because the devil loves to, to flaunt Christians out that say that how much they're born again, well, they ain't living nothing. So your life becomes a life of hypocrisy because it began with first, you didn't spend any time with God, and you allowed selfishness to be birthed in your life where you only focus on yourself. And as you begin to do that, corruption, because when it's just about me, I'll do whatever it takes to get ahead. I introduce corruption into my life. As I introduce corruption into my life, now I begin to operate in areas of bad behavior. These bad behaviors are a result of carnality, which now employs the devil to be released in my life. And then God does not get glory through your life. Does all that make sense? Yes. <laughs> all right. Let's close here. The cycle is a kingdom system that's facilitated through obedient servants. God's goodness leads men to repentance. The reason why we sung about the goodness of God a few minutes ago is because one of the ways that God is good to people is through obedient servants. The Bible says in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 that the goodness of God leadeth men or leadeth men to repentance. God wants to use his servants to be good to people. He wants to use your life. Watch this. The only way that happens is because I have a servant that's generous. The only way that happens is because I have a servant that is deciding to be selfless. The only way that happens is because I have a servant that's interested in doing kingdom good work. When that happens, then God says, I will fund the work of their hand because their work aligns with my heart. And when their work aligns with my heart, it allows me to show my goodness through their life. The goodness of God draws men towards repentance. Exodus 33, verse 19, all the things that God could have said about to Moses when he said, let me pass by you and you're going to see my glory. He doesn't say this. He says, I'm going to pass by you, Moses. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock and you'll see my back. He said, you'll see my goodness pass by you. When we understand that God is good, then we begin to understand that what he wants to do in your life is produce good works because you are supposed to be the body of Christ, which it means that you are the hands, the feet of Jesus in this physical earth. That the good work that he wants to have in your community is supposed to come through your hands. The good thing that he wants to do in that organization is supposed to come through you. He's looking for submitted people. God uses his people to display his goodness to humanity. And so to the degree we allow the Holy Spirit to develop virtue on the inside of us and get God's heart, become generous, to the degree it's not about you and now you're interested in performing the good work, God says, I will get involved with your deeds that you are involved with. As a man purpose in his heart, so let him give. God is telling you, get my heart, 
Give according to what I tell you to give. And the work that you are looking to do because you've been spending time with me, God says, I will fund that work. God says, I'm willing to invest in you if you invest in me. Let's pray. Father, in the authority of the name of Jesus, we bless you and we praise you for this opportunity to have gotten into your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that we choose to walk in virtue. We choose, therefore, God, to be generous. We choose, therefore, God, to be selfless. We choose, therefore, God, to have your agenda for good works that give you glory, that give you praise. We thank you, Lord, that it's not about us, but it's all about you. And we say so and we, we, we follow up with our actions. That it's really about you. It's really about what you want at the job. It's really about what you want in our families. It's really about where you want us to live, where you want us to, to, to re relocate. It's about you and your agenda. And we thank you, Lord, as we lay our lives out to you, that every seed produces after its own kind. As we lay our life out to you, that you're well able to take care of every detail of our individual life. And so, God, we choose this morning again to say, Lord, we trust you. Your directives. We trust your methods. We thank you, Lord, that all is well with our households. Even if we got to say so by faith, we thank you, Lord, that all is well. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen. Praise the Lord. All right. Because, again, the whole message was about sowing, I want to say this. A farmer, I want, I want to say it this way. A farmer has seed. When a farmer has seed, he has potential. Potential for a harvest, potential for growth. I submit to you the fact that that farmer even has seed in his hand means that he has been blessed. If you have any seed, you are blessed now. You are not trying to get blessed. You are already blessed. But just like that farmer that has seed and he is blessed because he has some seed, he cannot expect a harvest if he doesn't plant the seed in the ground. The farmer making a decision to plant the seed is a decision to plant means he is in deciding to invest in that ground. Planting the seed, therefore, becomes an act of trust. I trust that ground is going to produce for me. Planting the seed also means it is an act of commitment because I'm going to have to begin cultivating my seed to make sure it grows. That means the farmer has to go out and water his seed. Well, the word tells us how we water our seed is by the confessions of our mouth. Speaking over your seed. As that farmer puts that seed in the ground, displaying his trust, and he commits that he's going to be committed to that seed by watering it, making sure it grows properly. Then he can now expect a harvest, which is a profit. Therefore, if we does not put any seed in the ground, he can't expect a profit. Even though in the very beginning, he was blessed because he had seed. Yes, in the New Testament, yes, there are all different kinds of things that we need to understand about New Testament giving. The heart of New Testament giving has to do with a cheerful and a prompt to do it or a willing heart. What does that mean? Someone that, God, I trust you with the seed. That I'll sow where you tell me to sow. 
I will trust you to the degree and I'll commit to you where I'll keep my mouth in agreement with the seeds that I'm sowing. That I speak to my seed and I say, seed grow in the name of Jesus and produce a harvest. No, there is no lack in my house because my God supplies all of my need according to his riches and glory. That's how you water your seed. And then I have an expectation of a harvest because when I sowed, I sowed where he told me to sow. I put my seed in the ground where he is instructing me to put my seed. And then because I've done so, God is able to make all grace abound towards me. So the thing that I'm involved with, the assignment that God's placed on my life to take care of my family, to take care of my community, God says I'm able to supply. I'm able to meet your needs because you obeyed me first. That trust and commitment sown in the ground directed produces a harvest. Three ways you can sow into the training center. One way is by way of our P.O. Box, which is P.O. Box, 2358 Gastonia, North Carolina. Second way that you can sow into the training center is by way of our cash app, which is dollar sign one TTC. And last but definitely not least, you can sow into the training center by way of our online giving at www.thetrainingcenter-church.org. All three ways will be received by this ministry. And we thank you for whatever seed that God has instructed you to in fact sow. While you're sowing, of course, you can sow and give live in the house. While you're doing so, let us set ourselves in agreement with those that have sown and are sowing into this ministry. Father, in the authority of the name of Jesus, we bless you for your people and their obedience. We thank you, Lord, that we live under an open heaven which the blessings are pouring out upon us and which there's not room enough to receive because we are tight as we are indeed givers. We thank you, Lord, that because of that, you've rebuked the devourer for our sake. We declare that we are blessed. But, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that we are seed sowers. And because we're seed sowers, we thank you, Lord, that we have an expectation of a divine harvest. So we just thank you for the harvest in the lives of everyone that sows into this ministry. And we speak over their seed and say, seed grow and produce an abundant supply in the name of Jesus. We thank you for it. We give you praise for it. We thank you. We trust you with our seed. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone that say amen. Well, praise the Lord. Well, unless you need personal.